there's a novel concept. USA Today best-selling author Christine Catherine Rush writes in almost every genre. Generally, she uses her real name for most of her writing. Under that name, she publishes best-selling science fiction and fantasy, award-winning mysteries, acclaimed mainstream fiction, controversial non-fiction, and the occasional romance. Her works include the Fae series, with a sweeping scope reminiscent of George R.R. R. Martin's Westeros and intricate characters like those in J.R.R. R. Tolkien's Middle Earth, Christine Catherine Rush's Fae series takes fantasy in a whole new direction. When the most powerful ruling family in the world attempts to conquer a tiny, seemingly helpless island kingdom, they meet forces that they never knew existed. In a fight spread over generations, this saga of hope and magic proves that the greatest power of all comes from love. The Retrieval Artist series, a series of 15 books consisting of seven standalone novels and the Anniversary Day saga, an epic eight-book story of conspiracy, revenge, and shadowy justice. Miles Flint, no stranger to tough cases, walks a razor edge as he and others struggle to save the moon from total destruction. Where will you be when the bombs go off? And the Diving series, a space opera set in a vividly imagined far-future universe, featuring a strong, capable female heroine blending fast-paced action with an exploration of the nature of friendship and the ethics of scientific discoveries. Her novels have made bestseller lists around the world, and her short fiction has appeared in 18 Best of the Year collections. She has won more than 25 awards for her fiction, including the Hugo, Le Prix Imaginal, the Asimov's Reader's Choice Award, and the Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine Reader's Choice Award. Rush publishes mystery novels under the pseudonym Chris Nelscott. Publications from the Chicago Tribune to Booklist have included her Nelscott mystery novels in their top 10 best mystery novels of the year. The Nelscott books have received nominations for almost every award in the mystery field, including the Best Novel Edgar Award and the Seamus Award. Her Nelscott mystery novels include the Smokey Dalton series, Memphis 1968, Black P.I. White Client, and Martin Luther King's On the Way. Memphis P.I. Smokey Dalton is hired by a wealthy woman from Chicago to find out why her mother left him $10,000 in her will. Toss in the fact that 1968 Memphis is a racial powder keg set to go off with an ongoing sanitation workers strike and the impending arrival of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. contributing to the mix. Now add in that Smokey's developing a strong and apparently mutual attraction to his white client and you've got one hell of a read that offers an unflinching look at a pivotal moment in American history. He's an appealing private eye a loner with a strong set of ethics, burning with anger at the injustices he sees every day, but careful to distance himself from the struggle for equality swirling all around him, or any personal involvement. He doesn't even commit himself to his profession. He prefers to call himself an odd jobs man. But the distance Smokey tries to keep is rapidly shrinking, even as his attraction grows, and it soon becomes obvious that somehow, somewhere, his client's life and his are inextricably linked. Rush writes goofy romance novels as award winner Christine Grayson, romantic suspense as Christine Dexter, futuristic science fiction as Chris DeLake, and has sold a number of short stories. She also edits, beginning with work at the innovative publishing company Pulp House, followed by her award-winning tenure at the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, she took 15 years off before returning to editing with the original anthology series Fiction River, 
published by WMG Publishing. She acts as series editor with her husband, writer Dean Wesley Smith, and edits at least two anthologies in the series per year on her own. Rush is one of the few people who can boast having both Star Wars and Star Trek on her resume, being the author of Star Wars The New Rebellion and writing or co-writing 10 novels set in the Star Trek universe. Sandy Schofield is the pen name that Christine Catherine Rush and her husband Dean Wesley Smith use for their collaborative writing works. Leapers will know Sandy Schofield best as the author of the Quantum Leap novel Loch Ness Leap. Dr. Donald Harding, theoretical physicist, believes only in science. His son Travis believes in the unbelievable. It's March of 1986 when Sam leaps into Harding, who has come to Loch Ness, where his son is attempting to prove the existence of the fabled monster. Ziggy says that there is a 50% chance that Sam is there to keep the two from becoming permanently estranged. But Sam suspects that there is something more to the leap, something concerning Travis Harding's girlfriend, an oddly familiar young woman who calls herself Dixie Fuller. Sam is right. He is not at Loch Ness for Donald Harding's son. He's there for his own daughter, and what he does will be the key to her future as well as his own. Now, please enjoy my conversation with Christine Catherine Rush. This is a warning for all new Leapers. There may be spoilers of Loch Ness Leap and the Quantum Leap series in general. Thanks so much for joining us, Christine. Thank you for asking me. Because Quantum Leap's a really unique concept in that you could come up with any situation or scenario and create a story about it, how did the story Loch Ness Leap come about? Well, I wrote Loch Ness Leap with my husband, Dean Wesley Smith. And we've both been interested in the Loch Ness Monster and everything else. And so we were talking to Ginger Buchanan, who was the editor of the uh, Quantum Leap books at the time. And um, she suggested that, well, initially she suggested that we uh, all go to Scotland together to uh, research the book. But of course, there wasn't enough money in it for that. But, you know, we sat around and we were talking about Loch Ness and the monster. And would it be cool? Because then we would be able to find out if the monster actually existed. And that's kind of the genesis. We wanted to write a Quantum Leap book. We wanted to write one for Ginger. And then we got all silly. And somehow we ended up with the Loch Ness Monster in Scotland. <laughs> well, it sounds great. At least you've got something to talk about there. And you obviously did a lot of research about Scotland for the book. How long do you think the research took and how did you get your information if you didn't go over there? Well, the uh, research took oh, off and on about a month. We have a lot of friends from Scotland and Ginger had been there actually. So she corrected any information that we might have gotten wrong. Although it wasn't hard because Dean and I live on the Oregon coast and it is very similar to Scotland. You know, the weather is similar. The look is similar. So we were able to use photographs and information on the web and stuff from friends to make it as realistic as possible. Awesome. How close was the final product to how you originally envisioned and were you happy with the finished product? It was a fascinating project to work on because usually when Dean and I collaborate, what he would do was he would write the plot and it would come out to be like 100 pages. And then I would go through it and I would add in the characters and the setting and the dialogue. And in this one, Dean discovered, which I had already known because I had said, you know, this could be a problem. There isn't a lot of plot in Quantum Leap. Not they go off, fight monsters, come back. They go off, kill somebody, come back. Quantum Leap is more stories of discovery. So that's really not adventurers going and doing something. And so what that meant is that, you know, I got like, 
50 pages from Dean initially because he was really kind of confused. It was like, how do I do this? I said, don't worry about it. I'll handle it. And then he, instead of doing it the 100 pages and then me fleshing it out, it was me writing part of it and then him fixing part of it. That sounds great. It must be a nice experience being able to collaborate with Dean. Now, it's said that everyone writes from what they know. Were there any events in Loch Ness Leap that were inspired by anything that happened in your own life? Oh, probably. I'm not one of those aware writers. I usually don't take things out of life and say, oh, I'm definitely putting it into what I'm writing. I find out years later that there's stuff, you know, and nobody actually gave me feedback that said this clearly came from this part of your life. So I'm sure it did because you can't write any other way, but not that I'm aware of. It's funny how sometimes you do it subconsciously instead of consciously, isn't it? Well, I really enjoyed the fact that the star of this novel is actually Sammy Joe. She's written as a very headstrong but damaged character, and it actually upset me a little bit reading that growing up she had to dumb herself down to be accepted and that in any other timeline except for the one where she's part of the Quantum Leap project, she ends up wasted and miserable. But I mean that in a good way because you know that writing is good when it makes you feel something. What was it about the Sammy Joe character in the show that made you want to explore her character more? And what brought on this poetic license to portray the character in this way? That's two different questions. First of all, I always thought Sammy Joe was probably one of the most interesting characters they introduced on a show full of interesting characters. But the poetic license, as you call it, when you work in someone else's universe, what you're dealing with is their permissions and the things that they have envisioned and the things that they wanted to do. And the Quantum Leap people were great because we went back and forth and we figured out what we wanted to talk about, you know, how they envisioned Sammy Joe, how we envisioned Sammy Joe. And it turned out to be we were all on the same page. Right. It means that uh, it's written very well when you envision exactly what they picked as well. Now, there are some very emotional moments in the novel, like when Sam comes clean with Sammy Joe about being her father and causes a massive argument. Does it affect you when you're writing emotional material? Oh, yeah. If I'm not feeling something, then the reader's not feeling something. Okay. Massive spoiler alert. A recurring theme in the television show is that whenever anything supernatural is alluded to in the episode, it ends up that there'd be a surprise reveal that the supernatural being actually exists. So did you have that theme in mind when you were deciding whether or not Nessie would exist? Absolutely. We knew that. Absolutely. That was part of the point of putting it where we put it. I really enjoyed the fact that Loch Ness Leap incorporated more science fiction elements to the Quantum Leap universe than the show did. Had you intentionally wanted to stretch the science fiction elements in Quantum Leap, like changing timelines with a small change in the past and having to deal with the consequences? Or do you think it just evolved through the writing process from your background in science fiction? No, that was Dean. The thing he liked about Quantum Leap and the thing he worried about with Quantum Leap was exactly that, the changes in the timeline. He writes a lot about time travel and he thinks about it a lot more than I do. And I write a lot about time travel too, but he really thinks about the implications and the science and how it's all going to work. And he really wanted that in there. This is kind of a silly question, but is it difficult to write when you have to have the words printed phonetically, like Mrs. Coman's Scottish accent? Yes, it is, because you have to think about it. It's really ridiculous. I, I work at home and I have cats. And so there are times when I'm sitting there trying to sound out a word and figure out how to write it down. Had we written the book this year 
or anywhere in the past five years, you could have gone online and had a translation program or a sound like pronunciation program do it for you and they give you the correct pronunciation. But when I was writing this one, when we were, we had to figure it all out on our own. And that was hard. I'm sure it would be, but I really appreciated it because it kind of makes it easier to picture what's going on there. So I've actually got a more writing in general question. I hope this doesn't sound too personal, but I've noticed that you've often had work published under a pseudonym. What reasons are there for doing that? The reason I ask is because in my mind, if I write something, take the time and put in the effort, then I'd want to get credit for it. I'm just wondering what reasons there might be for writing under a pseudonym. Well, when I started and through the 80s, 90s and early part of the century, traditional publishing was the only place that you could publish your work. There was not indie publishing. There wasn't publishing online and any of that stuff. And so every genre had a different level of sales. And in order to sell a book, the other company would look, you know, if you were selling from company A or to company B, the other company would look at your sales figures and offer you an advance based on your sales numbers. Now, in the United States, romance is the highest selling genre still. And so you could sell a romance novel at 100,000 copies, and that would be fantastic in science fiction. At romance, it was pretty good. But if I kept the same name for romance and for science fiction, if I wrote a romance book and sold 100,000 copies, I'd get a lot more money for my next science fiction book. But then it would only sell 20,000 copies, which is a complete death in romance. And so you had to have, in those days, more than one name if you wrote in more than one genre. And when Dean and I were starting to write together, we have six names. And so we couldn't figure out how you'd put them on a book cover. Eventually, publishers said, screw it, we'll figure it out. But, you know, early on, we thought, okay, we'll just come up with a pen name that would have two family names. Sandy is my sister. Schofield is his family name. So that's why we ended up with a pen name there. I had a feeling it might be to do with bureaucracy. Uh, which of your works are still in print? Um, where can they be purchased? And are any available in ebook form? Everything is available in ebook form. But, for example, my novel Fantasy Life, which is out of pocketbooks, has a $21 ebook because I can't get the rights back. Isn't that ridiculous? But they're all in ebook. They're all in print because I managed to get the rights back to most of them and I put most of the backlist back in print. Plus, all of my short stories are in print. If you want to find me, you can. And it's on, you know, Amazon, everywhere, all over online. And you can always come to my website to find out where to find things. That is christinecatherinerush.com. And if you can't spell my whole name, which most people can't, try krisrights.com. Fantastic. A question we often get asked on the same topic is, are any of the Quantum Leap novels going to end up in ebook form? Do you know if Loch Ness Leap might end up in an ebook form? I didn't know it wasn't in ebook form. That's just sad. I have no idea who's watching over the project. Ginger, whom I mentioned, is retired. And I don't know who is now handling Quantum Leap for the uh, TV company anymore. So I have a hunch nobody's watching the hen house anymore. So they need somebody in charge because they're losing a lot of money not being an ebook. Exactly. And these days, people don't want shelves piled up with books when they can just carry it around on one tablet or one handheld device. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Now, what are some books that you absolutely love that may have inspired you to become a writer? Oh, there's, it changes every, every time. But the ones I generally talk about, uh, Daphne de Maurier's book, Rebecca, 
I love that book. I reread it every couple of years. And the same with F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. And then, of course, there's, you know, all of Andre Norton and most of Victoria Holt and every mystery writer on the planet, probably. I just was a voracious reader as a kid. In fact, I grew up in a small town. And I actually remember being one of those kids who, when I got my adult reading card at the library, started in one corner of the library and read my way through the fiction section. And it was a small enough town and we had a small enough library that I read everything in the library, even if it was too old for me. Uh, you're a real-life Matilda. <laughs> yeah, actually, unfortunately, yes. Well, you've recently released the last novel of the Anniversary Day series. Could you tell us a little bit more about the series and the writing process? Well, that was a heck of a writing process. I write the Retrieval Artist series, which I kind of called my 87th precinct for those of you who read Ed McBain. Um, Ed McBain is a mystery writer who started writing in the early 60s, and he wrote books all the way till his death sometime in this century. And every year or so, he would come out with an 87th Precinct novel. And they always focused on different characters in the 87th Police Precinct. And it became the basis for the TV show Hill Street Blues. So if you've ever seen Hill Street Blues, you understand how that sort of works. But I envisioned the retrieval artist being that way, except set on the moon. And then it became bigger than that. And somewhere, I think book three, there was an attack on the moon. And then I decided to cycle back and deal with that in a book called Anniversary Day. And I thought, oh, as I started writing it, I went, uh-oh. I always tried to make these books stand alone. And instead of this standing alone, I went, ooh, this could be a trilogy. And then I got to the next book and realized, huh, no, no, it's at least four books. And then I kept writing and writing and writing. And I suddenly realized, oh, my goodness, it's eight books. And so I talked to my publisher and I said, there's no way I, as a reader, would be happy to wait eight years to get all of these books. So can we just put them all one after another, one month now, the way that modern publishing allows? And they said, sure. And so the first two came out. One came out the first year, and then the next one came out the next year. And it was the third book where I started running into trouble and realized, oh, you can't resolve something this big in one book. So we put the remaining six out from between January and June of 2015. And it turned out to be a fantastic decision because readers could choose. They could choose if they wanted to read as the books came out, they could wait till the little saga inside the series was done, or they could take their time and read other things in between. It was a great decision. Awesome. And there's 15 books in total in the Retrieval Artist series, isn't there? At the moment. <laughs> and you have plans to keep writing that series? Until I die. Fantastic. Now, our fearless leader, Albie, is a massive Trekkie, so he'd kill me if I didn't ask if you had any stories from when you were writing any of your Star Trek novels. I think you've been involved in writing 10 of them. Is that correct? Oh, I have no idea. A lot of them. My husband wrote even more, and I kind of helped with a number of things that he did. So, yeah. Actually, I have a crossover Quantum Leap Star Trek story to tell you guys. I'm a huge Scott Bakula fan. I just adore Scott Bakula. And uh, we were working with a man by the name of John Ordover at Pocket Books, who was our Star Trek editor, and Paula Block, who was the person who was in charge of permissions for um, the company that handled Star Trek. It kept changing names during that time period, so I'm just, I don't know what name it ended up with. Anyway, when it came time for the Enterprise series with Scott Bakula, John called us, John Ordover, and said, you know, you guys want to write the first original novel for that series? And we're like, yes, absolutely, we do. So we wrote the book, and we had to write it really fast, and we couldn't see more than the ads. 
we only saw the ads for the episode. We couldn't even see the stuff that people were doing. So we kind of had to guess at character voices, but it was easy with Bacula. You know, he talks the way he talks. And he did a great, great job. So we're, we finished the book. They got it out. They got it out right about the time he's starting to do promotion for the series. And he carried it to all kinds of talk shows and put it out there and said, and they're even doing books. And there it was. And it was just, okay, the fangirl moment. It was one of those, wow, Scott Bakula's holding my book moments. It was really cool. Oh, I know what you mean. We had those massive fanboy and fangirl moments too when we managed to speak to Scott Bakula. It was unbelievable. So we know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Okay. So what's it like writing for an established franchise like Quantum Leap or Star Trek as opposed to starting a universe from scratch? Well, you're in control of your own universe. When you start it from scratch, you can't just say, oh, there are flying monkeys and oh, never mind. I don't want them to fly anymore. I mean, you have to be consistent. But you are in charge of it. You can wave your hands or do whatever you want. But in the established universe, some of them, they're very draconian. You have to do it X, Y, and Z. And some of them, they don't care at all about what you do. And I actually kind of prefer the ones that are in the middle because they actually care about their product and they care about their universe, but they want to have you have creative freedom. And so it's really different. It's a stretch as a writer to write for somebody else's universe because you need to be able to play in their universe. But I've done a lot, so it's a lot of fun. The only advice I would give anybody who's thinking about doing it is make sure you love it. Don't ever write in a universe you think, oh, I could write that, but you don't love it because you're going to be spending weeks, if not months, in that universe. Why not do it for something you love instead of something you don't? Absolutely. So how much freedom did you have when writing for Quantum Leap? It was on the far end of the freedom scale. The stories that they told in Quantum Leap, the universe that they had was just the room and all the stuff that they did. The the background was pretty shallow. So you had a lot of freedom as opposed to, say, Trek, which had decades of history that you had to touch. And the hardest one for me was Star Wars. I did a Star Wars novel. And they were in control of everything because they thought that was going to be canon. And then, of course, they threw it out when this new movie came about. But for the longest time, they thought that was going to be canon. So, I mean, they had to approve every word. I mean, I remember um, at one point they went through and changed common words because they wouldn't be used. One of them was windshield, I think. They wouldn't be used in the Star Wars universe. That was a little, it was like, okay, guys, you're a little excessive here. Well, for a franchise as massive as Star Wars, you do want to get it right, because otherwise the fanboys will come at you with flaming torches, won't they? Right, but I was doing this 20 years ago when it wasn't quite as massive. There were only three movies at that point. So, you know, I don't even think they used the word windshield in the three movies. It was one of those words they hadn't used. So, you know, they had their background stuff. But the problem with the Star Wars universe at Lucasfilm is they didn't give you the information until after you'd written the book. Then they'd say, no, no, you can't do it that way. Like, okay, it would have been nice to know that up front. Ridiculous. You're also an editor at the moment, editing the anthology series Fiction River. So for our listeners who might not know, what does being an editor entail? And obviously you've had a lot of experience with editors as an author. Do you think that might have affected how you work as an editor now? Ooh, let's think. Okay, well, what you do as an editor is that you basically curate something. You put together stuff you like. I mean, that's the bottom line. Anytime you read an anthology or, you know, a magazine, it's the best of what you received and what you like the most. And it reflects your taste. And so I think having that perspective really helped me a lot as a writer. 
because that way I knew rejection wasn't personal. It just wasn't to somebody's taste. Um, did it affect my other? Yeah, it did affect some of the ways that I work with writers or other editors. And you'd think that it would make me more understanding. And 90% of the time it does. But every now and then you run into one of those editors who is just not very professional. And I always find myself thinking, you know, it's not that hard to be polite. It's not that hard to understand that there are other people on the other side of things. So I think I'm kind of like the waitress who's going off to have a meal in a restaurant. If I get great service, I'm going to give you a great tip. And if I get crappy service, I'm going to be the grumpiest customer you ever came about. And so I think that's my heritage of being an editor with being a writer. But they kind of go hand in hand. And I do a lot more editing projects than I ever thought I would because I thought when I quit the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, I had retired from editing. And now I'm, I think I've got five projects going on besides Fiction River. So I'm back doing it. Wonderful. Okay, I've got actually a question that Albie's just sent me. Are you interested in writing any books for the 2017 Star Trek series, which is going to be headed by Brian Fuller? I would love to, but I've got so many projects that I'm working on right now, I don't know when I'd have the time. Boy, I'm really interested, though. I'm excited that it's coming. And are there any other franchises that you've wanted to write for but haven't had the chance yet? Not right now, no. The things I'm really enjoying are so complicated, I'm not even sure how I could dive into them. For example, all the stuff that's going on in the Marvel universe with television and movies and comics, you know, it seems to me that those people who are writing in that universe are juggling so much stuff, and it's all interconnected, that you would actually have to work in a room with a team to get it right. And I'm not sure I'm a team player. But boy, I think they're doing a fantastic job, and that's the one I'm having the most fun with right now. Deadpool's out today too, so <laughs> maybe you might want to write for the Deadpool <laughs> stories. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be fun? I have a hunch Dean would love to write Deadpool. Oh, absolutely. It looks fantastic. <laughs> and I it like really the fact that Ryan Reynolds is in charge and wants it to be as close to the source material as possible and really want to keep it authentic. So going off on a tangent there. <laughs> oh, no, no. When we were watching the trailer for it, Dean Star he's more the comic book guy than I am. In fact, the reason he couldn't be here is we own businesses other than writing. and We own a comic book store and we're opening another one. And so he's working with the guys, you know, to work on that this afternoon because they just found this huge collection that they have to price and deal with anyway he saw the trailer for deadpool and he started bouncing like a three-year-old up and down in his chair and he said wow that is just they got it that's deadpool oh this movie's gonna fail oh it's wonderful it's lovely that's just deadpool they actually got it they got the tone he was so excited he was just really thrilled oh i am too <laughs> i can totally understand that well i hope we get a chance to talk to dean at some point I know he's expressed interest as well, so we'd absolutely love to talk to him and find out what he thought of the movie after he's had a chance to see it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. He'll probably, he'll either love it or hate it, I can guarantee you. I had to drag him to Guardians of the Galaxy because he did not like the comics. And so after I saw the movie by myself and then I dragged him to it, he's like, I can't believe I'm going to go see Guardians of the Galaxy. And then he was ready by the end of the movie to see the next one until it was about Howard the Duck. And then he was like, I don't know. And I'm like, you're going to go. You like this one. You're going to go. So... He's not on the fence at all about these. He either loves them or hates them. And so far, he's loved all of them. So I think it'll, it'll be that way. Well, at the very least, if the first one's anything to go by, the soundtrack's going to be fantastic. Oh, absolutely. I mean, wow. Because that first one was fun. Well, the second one, I can't imagine it being anything but fun. And you've just made me think of something else I want to ask as well. Because talking about the music, 
the music in Quantum Leap really sets the scene as well. Have you ever thought about what sort of music or songs might go with what you're writing and does that ever kind of inspire you as well? It really does. Sometimes when I'm writing, it's pretty straightforward. When I wrote Star Wars, of course, you had to play John Williams and Dean said, He's never gotten so sick of something his entire life. I'm still not sick of that music, but he did. You know, and then sometimes I don't play any music at all. And sometimes I play a soundtrack over and over again. I wrote a book called The Death of Davy Moss, which is a straightforward kind of romance mystery novel. And um, I built a soundtrack for that that I played over and over again in my office while I was writing that one. And some of it crept into the book because it's a book about music. So it just depends on the project. Awesome. Well, hopefully uh, when we get the Blu-ray release of Quantum Leap, they don't butcher the music like they did with the DVD series in uh, America. That was horrible because the music really was another character in the series and helped to set the scene and the time. And You have a special promotion on your website at the moment called Women in Fantasy Story Bundle. Would you be able to explain to our listeners what the promotion entails and how they'll be able to take advantage of this generous offer? Well... I've worked with StoryBundle a number of times. It's StoryBundle.com. And if you're interested in reading ebooks, it is the place to go. You can get a bunch of ebooks for a price that you pretty much set yourself. There are minimums, of course. The Women in Story Bundle came about, Women in Fantasy Story Bundle. I did a Women in Science Fiction one last August. And both came about because I'm working on this huge project. I was talking to young writers, and especially young women writers, and they kept telling me that there were no women in science fiction, present company excluded, and I got really offended. And I was like, what do you mean? What about Lois McMaster Bujold? What about Connie Willis? What about, and I started listing all these writers, like Anne McCaffrey, and a lot of these young writers have never heard of them. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? And then I actually started looking, because I was teaching a science fiction class, and I thought, I'm just going to show these people, you know, what they should be reading. And I realized that most of the short fiction in particular by women was never reprinted. And so there's all these classic stories, award-winning stories by wonderful female writers that for some reason were never, ever reprinted. I mean, Damon Knight did a collection of, you know, science fiction of the 1930s and didn't include C.L. Moore, who was one of the major, major writers of the 1930s. And so I thought, okay, well, I got to correct this. The reason nobody thinks that women write this stuff is because they can't find it anywhere. And I found it as a kid, but those books all went out of print. So I'm working with Bain Books and a couple other places, and we're starting to put some of this stuff back in print. We got other other projects that are coming, and two of the projects were the story bundles. The uh, one last August did really well, and now the Women in Fantasy Story Bundle has novels and novellas and one short story collection by women writers. And some of them have been writing for decades, and some of these writers have just started in this century. And it's a great way to get introduced to a bunch of writers. There are 10 books. You can get them all for $15, and you can end up donating to a charity. At the same time, the charity we picked for this one is the Pearl Foundation, which is put together by Janice Ian, the singer-songwriter, and her partner, Pat. And um, it's named for Janice's mother. Janice's mother went back to school when she was, when Janice was a little girl and had to do all that struggling stuff that you do when you go to college as an adult, you still have to pay all your bills and take care of your kid and go to college. So the Pearl Foundation is a scholarship fund to benefit older students. So you can benefit, you can go through the Pearl Foundation and you can get 10 books for 15 bucks. And I think that's just such a great deal. And that's at storybundle.com. And it's only until February 23rd. So you got to hurry. You've also just made me think of something else too. A friend of the podcast, 
that we have is Deborah Pratt. And I'm sure she would be very upset if she found that people didn't know about women in science fiction as well, her being so prolific in it too. So maybe we can get you in touch with her and get her involved in those sort of projects too. Oh, thank you. That would be wonderful. It just reminds me too, like there are situations in the show and also in Loch Ness Leap, which I don't think would ever appear if they weren't written by a woman. Like when Sam leaps into a woman for the first time and has to experience sexual harassment or in Loch Ness Leap where Sammy Joe has had to spend her life dumbing herself down so that she'll be accepted at school and so that she can find herself a good husband and that sort of thing. Um, we really need women in all our genres so that we can get a better picture of what happens in life and be able to bring change where it's needed. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, yes. And, you know, the thing is that women have been a part of the science fiction and fantasy field since it started. It, it depends on when you, even when you date when it started, but there have been women from the beginning. And the first female editor in the modern era was part of Amazing Stories in 1926. She was an assistant, unless you count the female editor of All Story magazine, which started at the beginning of the 20th century. So women have been there. It's an inherent bias in who you are. So if you're a white male and you're editing stuff, you tend to pick things that are from part of your worldview. And if your worldview is white male, then you're going to pick white men. And my worldview is women, so I'm going to pick women. And if you're African-American, you'll pick more African-American stories just because it kind of goes with your culture, your heritage, your upbringing. And unfortunately, the curators of science fiction from the middle of the 20th century forward were all white men, with the exception of Judy Merrill. She did a year's best. And so a lot of the reprint anthologies, you know, the best science fiction of this year or the best this and that, would leave out the award winners by the women and put in stories that didn't get any attention at all, but they spoke more to the editor. And so it was a, not an intentional bias. I'm not saying that there were necessarily being that way because, you know, they were trying to exclude women, but it happened. And now it's just got to be fixed. So I think part of my mission is kind of backwards looking in a way. It's like, let's not lose all this wonderful work that all these people had done. And that's why one of the other projects we'll be doing, I'll be doing with a man by the name of John Helpers, another editor, is we'll start a series of Kickstarters at some point, probably later in the year, of trying to uh, redo all the award volumes. And so you can see the Hugo Awards from like 1966, which is when Anne McCaffrey won for her first Pern story. But there are a bunch of other stories by men and other people that have disappeared because they weren't picked as, quote, classic, unquote. They're great stories and they need to be reprinted. So we're going to try to do that and we're going to set it up as a Kickstarter. As I said, I'm editing way more than I expect it to be. <laughs> well, it sounds fantastic. Um, I'm really looking forward to experiencing that and uh, we'd be happy to promote everything that you're doing on the Kickstarter as well. So. Let's move Thanks. back a little bit to Quantum Leap now. What are your favorite parts or aspects of Quantum Leap, like the series in general? Oh, good heavens. It was and still is one of my favorite shows. It combined time travel. It had Scott Bakula. And it told stories with heart. And I love that. And then it would, as you mentioned, point out things about the world that you didn't necessarily know or that somebody didn't know or his character didn't know. You, you mentioned the one where he went back as a woman. I didn't remember that one as strongly because I am a woman probably. And so the stuff he learned wasn't that unique to me. But when he went back as an African-American man and experienced some of the stuff from that time period, boy, that really stuck with me. And the attention to detail, the way they were able to pack such a punch in 45 minutes 
and still conveyed the sense of the time period. It could have been so bad, that show. I mean, it could have been so awful where every episode was exactly the same. This poor man was struggling. But he was actually trying to do, in the, in the series, he was trying to do something interesting every single time. And he landed on his feet. And we managed to learn something, but he managed to touch a life before he left. And I just love that. I think one of my favorite episodes was when he went back and tried to save his father's life. That is science fiction kind of time travel geekiness, you know, where does he mess with this? Doesn't he? Uh, it was really wonderful. Yeah, I have very similar experience to you with the Color of Truth episode. Uh, that was the first episode I'd ever seen, and it's what got me hooked because I would never have experienced anything like that because I am white and obviously living in this time period as well. And just to see things like not being able to get medical help just because of the color of your skin. And yeah, after that, I was completely hooked. <laughs> yeah, it was a brilliant episode. And then they had fun ones. The Man in La Mancha episode is one of my favorites. So. Oh, don't get Albie started on that. He'll he'll be singing Man of La Mancha songs <laughs> until the cows come home. <laughs> I'd love to hear it. <laughs> okay. Did you ever feel any extra pressure writing about what's become one of the most beloved series on the planet? I always feel pressure when I write something in somebody else's universe because, as I said before, I'm writing from a place of love. I am a fangirl first. I am a reader first, a fangirl first. That's how I came into all of this. And so I have this huge respect for the worlds that I'm writing in. And I don't want to screw them up. I don't want to be the person who wrote the book that everybody says, oh, she wrote the crappy book. Or she didn't understand what they were talking about on the show. I didn't want to ever be that person. So, yeah, it always feels like a major responsibility whenever I go into somebody else's universe. I try to do the best I possibly can. I think that everyone who's written for the Quantum Leap series actually did try their best to fit in with the series as it was intended as best they could. And it's really great to see. And I'm very lucky because I've only just recently found the Quantum Leap novels and comic books. So I'm experiencing all these new Quantum Leap adventures that we didn't get to experience back when it was originally running. So that's a great place to be. I love it when you get to discover, you know, the episodes that you missed, even if they're book episodes. It's just so fun. Oh, uh, it really is. And one of the fun things we like to do is uh, if someone's written about something that we've been discussing or that we had noticed in the show. So, okay. Have you written or do you have any plans to write any other Quantum Leap stories? And if so, where would you have Sam Leap to next? No, I'm not going to write another Quantum Leap story because they're not doing the book franchise and I don't have time with all the other stuff I'm doing to write fan fiction. Unfortunately, I don't know where I'd have Sam Leap next. Maybe the American Civil War because um, that's something I'm working on right now. And there are so many pockets of the American Civil War that just aren't being looked at or maybe Reconstruction right afterward because that's a fascinating time period. But he has to jump in his lifetime, so I'd have to figure out how I'd make that happen. See, I'm already going. <laughs> yeah, well, as, as long as he leaps into a blood ancestor with DNA similar enough, he'd be able to leap back further than his lifetime. We, we managed to get that into the show, so. <laughs> that's yeah. true. Awesome. Well, that, well, there you go. That, that's how you could do it. <laughs> I, I've, well, I've put the little, um, the little catalyst in your head now. So. <laughs> there you go. Now I'm, now I'm really thinking about it. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. I've had a fantastic time talking to you and you've given me a lot to think about and a lot to put on my reading list. So, Good, good. Well, this has been a lot of fun and thank you guys. <laughs>